You're listening to SequelCast 2 and Friends, a proud part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. This is a vintage episode of SequelCast 2 and Friends. Audio quality may not be up to current standards. We apologize for the nastier audio artifacts. Our white skin, our fierce eyes, drink, you ask me. Do you have any idea of the thing you will become? You are evil, since you cannot be evil. And I shall suffer for it no longer. Don't make me do this, I cannot! After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sounds are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. They are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a podcast where we look about movies in a franchise one film at a time. We're kicking off a look at a new franchise for us with uh, Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles consisting of Interview with the Vampire and Queen of the Damned. This show, we're talking about Interview with the Vampire. Our theme song is uh, written and performed by Mark with a C. Check him out at markwithac.com. Check out SequelCast at SequelCast.com. And the SequelCast, of course, is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension fleet. You can check out Battleship Pretension, SequelCast, and all the other uh, shows uh, of the Battleship Pretension fleet, all uh, film or TV-related, at BattleshipPretension.com. I'm Matt. With me is Thrasher. Blah! Stereotypical vampire noise that doesn't come from anywhere, but people do it anyway. Blah! I want to cruise your pit. Uh, (laughs) 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 That sounds like actual, like, uh, gay slang. And, you know, there's a whole thing with with Interview with the Vampire and Anne Rice's vampire novels as being a metaphor for the gay lifestyle. Although Anne Rice did not make that intentional, um, well, we, we uh, talked about she, this. So she claims. We talked about this before, though. When, when we talk about the Hobbit, whenever you have, uh, whenever you have a movie or a story where there's two guys that are really good friends, inevitably they're going to be people who say, "Oh yeah, they're gay," whether or not there's anything to bear that out. I mean, in the Anne Rice book, certainly less so in the, in the films that we'll be talking about. You know, this episode and the next uh, next week. They, uh, the vampire characters are all either gay or bisexual. They live the, uh, an exciting life in, in secret. They they meet up in like vampire theaters or, or catacombs and that kind of thing, which could be seen as metaphors for a gay bar or a gay club. Well, they're hedonists, you know, they're, w- yes. once you've been dead for a while, anything goes. And, you know, I don't agree with this, but some people consider the gay lifestyle hedonistic in a way. Right, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think you can make that metaphor. I don't know if it's a big stretch. I was talking about it with a, a friend of the show, Andrew, who was a uh, Andrew Camara, uh, and he's been talking with us at our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sequelcast, and he was a guest, I think, on our, um, it was like a 2011 year in review oh, uh, yes. sequelcast special, right? And I told him that, and he thought that was very funny and agreed with me, but... um yeah, I don't know, and I, that's not the best place to start a discussion of the film Interview with the Vampire, which came out in 1994, uh, so I was 12 years old when it came out, directed by Neil Jordan, produced by David Geffen and Stephen Woolley. Uh, the screenplay for the film was written by Anne Rice, but a lot of different people took a stab at the script, no t- pun intended, 
uh, based on the novel Interview with the Vampire by Anne Rice, starring Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Stephen Rhea, Antonio Banderas, Christian Slater, and Kristen Dunst. Music by Elliot Golenthal. Cinematography by Philippe Rizzolo. Um, released uh, through Geffen Pictures, distributed by Warner Brothers. Off a budget of $60 million, this made $223 million. I'm not sure if that's worldwide or domestically. Well, I'm going to say right off the bat, I love this cast. Really? Uh, um, hey, what about, you mean at the time, or even just looking back on oh, no, it, no, all the superstars? Even now, I, I think this is a really good, a really strong cast. Now, I, I have not read the book this is based on, um, which is based on 30 Days of Night, right? Boom. But, um, um, yeah, I mean, I, okay. I think people yeah. who have, have, uh, have read the book tell me that it's cast horribly. Uh, I don't have that frame of reference. I think, uh, I, I don't know, I, I, I like, I think they made the right, the right choice with Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, and, uh, and Kirsten Dunst. Hmm. That's, uh... Yeah, I mean, this was meant to be a uh, a franchise with these stars continuing in the films, but they had... It was such a long development process to get this through uh, to the screen. It was but like I guess first off, years from novel to movie. Yeah, but not only that, and I mean, we'll talk about this in a minute. Uh, but first off, you know, when did you first see Interview with the Vampire Thrasher? Uh, I think I saw it. I'm assuming the first time I saw it was in in 1995 when it showed up uh, when it showed up on cable. But I have mm-hmm. seen it many many times since then. Yeah, I, I saw it, I think it would have been like um, 94, 95. I had read the the book beforehand, and I at the time in middle school, I was part of this like email, I don't know, like fiction writers fan club thing. This is when the internet was really getting started, like in 94. Did it was all pretty... Wa- and, uh, things like uh, yeah, yeah, that's what it was, in fact. It was a special Usenet news group, right. And I don't remember the name of it, and uh, I don't think I actually... You logged onto that with your Amiga, didn't you, old man? Uh, it was a uh, Packard Bell 486, uh, 66 megahertz uh, PC, with uh, a whopping 8 megabytes of RAM and a double-speed CD-ROM drive. Cool. Um, uh, you know, like, your your toaster is more powerful than that now, I, I bet, all the fancy things your toaster can do but um right so i mean that's how i was introduced through it through a friend on that message board and i've watched this film a lot too thrasher and i have uh i haven't read all i think it's believed 10 novels in the vampire chronicles plus like two spin-offs and uh, Anne rice tried to do something called like the new vampire chronicles which dealt with obscure side characters that didn't really take off and she's been rumored to come back to this series and uh i've read a lot of Anne rice novels but only the first four of the vampire novels, that being Interview with the Vampire, The Vampire Lestat, um, Queen of the Damned, and Tale of the Body Thief. And the fifth, Memnock the Devil, just defeated me, because it's, it's very um, very dense. It's almost like you're reading a scholarly medieval poem. Mm. And a lot of it's, you know, kind of a remake of Paradise Lost that happens to have Lestat, and it's written in... Uh, you said you read a little bit of the Interview with the Vampire book because we were talking before the show, right? Yes, I was I was lent uh, I was lent a copy uh, during my okay. college years, and like a- as I've mentioned on the show before, I usually read about five books at a time, and every now and then one of those books gets lost in the shuffle, and Interview sure, with the Vampire yeah. just happened to be the book uh, that got lost in the shuffle. Hmm. Um, you know, the thing, uh, from what I've read of Anne Rice, and it's mainly her older stuff, I'd like to check out, she came out with a new uh, werewolf book called The Wolf Gift. I, I'm not sure if that's the start of a, a new novel franchise or not. 
And recently, you know, Anne Rice, um, she grew up as very, uh, very Catholic. I'm not sure which branch. And then she kind of went away from it a while, and then she came back. And then, because of her political views, she said she's still a Christian, but she doesn't stand with the church in a lot of issues, uh, such as gay rights and that sort of thing. Um, meaning that she's in support of gay rights, and uh, which I am as well. I assume you are a Thrasher, right? Well, yeah. I'm I'm for human rights and and human rights, sure. Uh, yes, absolutely. And um, with all that being said, she's uh, been talking about doing uh, some of the vampire novels again and continuing that saga. My, my wife's read all ten books, uh, but Anne Rice, uh, what she's really good at in the novels is the historical descriptions. They're very rich, very lush. Mm. And the dialogue might come off as cheesy. The the plots could seem kind of soap opery, but she she captures a historical feeling in time. You get a sense of the uh, the clothes people wore, what what these rooms look like. Um, it, it, they feel the books are like historical epics. And this interview with the vampire, the first out of two films they've made uh, off this huge franchise of books, really captures that well. I think it it is a vampire epic. You know, I, I don't think you could call it vampires meet Gone with the Wind or anything, but although it, I would, yes. uh, I would like to make <laughs> that uh, movie. Uh. Yeah, I mean, you do have a a classic sort of plantation uh, house in the South burning down in the film, and we'll get into that in a minute. And you know, uh, as I was trying to say at the start of the show, they tried to make this film a lot of different ways. At one point, um, Elton John. And uh, Bernie Taupin, his uh, lyricist for several years, wanted to do it as a movie musical, and they couldn't get it off the ground. And then um, about six or seven years ago on Broadway, they did a show called Lestat based on the first two uh, vampire books, including Interview with the Vampire, oh, that Elton wrong. John and Bernie Taupin you know, did the music and lyrics for. And I've listened to uh, bootlegs of that score, including a rare bootleg where Elton John does all the vocals and plays the piano and has like a backing chorus that's really fascinating to listen to. And I don't think all the songs worked. And sadly, the musical hit, you know, before the Twilight stuff really came out. And had Twilight been out to kind of goose the vampire stuff back in pop culture, I think that musical would have been a smash. And uh, as it standed, it closed on Broadway really quickly. The previews were held in San Francisco and were big in San Francisco. It, it, was, it was really huge there. Well, and then they changed a lot when they brought it to the Great White Way. Well, the the uh, the popularity of vampires it really it, it does work in a tide, and starting mm-hmm. in the 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 late seventies early eighties is when the, a new tide of, of vampire popularity came came rushing in that started with you know the works of uh, Anne Rice and Brian Lumley and just you know continued in cinema with the Lost Boys and Fright Night and uh, and to well in the late seventies and in the late seventies you had a remake of Dracula starring Frank Langella. As a Dracula, which has a uh, feature Sylvester McCoy in a very small role. Oh, I've never seen it, but I know John Williams did the score. Um, yeah, and it just kind of it kind of built throughout the '90s. We got Vampire: The Masquerade, the role playing yes. game, which you know, yeah, reinvigorated sure. the hobby. White Wolf and then, Publishing. Of course, this movie yeah. came out. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, both versions, and it, and it really did, did carry on all throughout the '90s, and it started uh, petering away, and then uh, a few years, then then of course, then Twilight showed. When did when did Twilight start? Let me look that up on. Uh, it's not our worth. Super I'm computer. going to assume it's not worth worth looking up. But the tide, the the vampire tide, kind of started moving out at the end of the '90s, and then uh, it's coming back again. 
we'll, we'll have to see whether it's going to be as prolonged as it was, because we had almost 20 years of vampire resurgence in the, the previous Tide. You know, the first Twilight uh, book, simply called Twilight, came out in 2005, so uh, seven years ago. But the, right. the final film, which is like Twilight 4 Part 2, I don't, I don't know what the title <laughs> is. Uh, the final But insult. I mean, but you know, like Harry Potter, they split up the last book into two bits, uh, two movies, I mean, so... And with all that being said, you know, when they finally made this, at one point they were going to combine the first three uh, Anne Rice uh, vampire novels into one movie, which would have been like combining 2,000 pages. It would have been like film. doing The Lord of the Rings as, as one movie. Yeah, because exactly. The, the, um, these books right. are, the books are dense enough. And this movie, this one movie is already really dense and, and fairly lengthy. Which I, again, as I've said before, I don't mind. I don't mind a long movie. I like a movie that takes its time. Yeah. But I, I can't imagine trying to pack the events of the Vampire Lestat into this as well. Right. At one point, and this might have been when Elton John was trying to get a movie musical made of this. They were uh, pitching around Sting as Lestat. Oh. When the fuck. film is played by Tom Cruise. No, no, Sting um, and David Bowie. That's who you get is Lestat and Louis. That's great. I, yeah. If you're doing a musical, or even not, like sure. They have that look. They have this sort of uh, um, pansexuality. I don't know what you want to call it. You know, they have this sort of vampire look to them. I'll just say that much. The aura uh, of seduction. Yes. Um, and, you know, when Tom Cruise was cast, uh, Anne Rice, uh, who was a screenwriter, and I think she might have had she might have had some kind of producing credit, I'm not sure, in the film, was really upset that they cast Tom Cruise. But then when she sure, when she saw the film, Interview with the Vampire, she was very impressed and kind of uh, ate her words and said, oh, he's rather good. And I, So, I mean, we can talk about the cast a bit before jumping into the film. Well, what do you think of Tom Cruise as Lestat and Brad Pitt as Louis? Well, Lestat and, really is a very needy, very codependent sociopath, and Tom yes. Cruise plays that very, very well. He does, and Tom Cruise has an accent which he often doesn't has in have in movies. But he doesn't have like a thick British accent. Like I don't like it's it's vaguely European. It's kind of refined. Well, it's 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 the perfect uh, vaguely European vampire accent. He could be from anywhere in the old country. Right. You know, I was uh, chatting on Twitter to a friend of the show, Colette Bennett, who uh, I'm not sure if she still writes for Destructoid or not, but she writes for Tomopop about like Japanese. Uh, anime and toys and things yeah and she was saying about interview with the vampire tom cruise should have never done it ha ha uh, ha, kind ha of a joke <laughs> and, and and i don't know i mean i think it was a risk for tom cruise you know the the joke with tom cruise uh, whether you can really call this a joke or not is that he's been gay or bisexual or whatever and who gives a crap really but uh, you know, in the movie, he sleeps with other men in coffins and all these things, and that he, he had to realize stepping into interview with the vampire as Lestat in the lead, it could have affected his his image. But uh, Tom Cruise, whatever you might think of him or his involvement with Scientology and stuff, is a really solid actor as well as being a pretty boy as far as looks go. Well, I mean, he he handles his public image pretty well. I, I, yeah. I'm sure that that he he. Whatever, if there had been any kind of backlash from being in this movie, I'm sure he would have had a plan to handle it. Right, and you know he's played his personal life fairly close to the vest as far as that goes, which is I think very respectable. With all the the tabloid stuff, especially now. Uh, Brad Pitt at the time, you know, wasn't a huge megastar back in '94. Well, it was, uh, it was like before this, he had done Remains of the Day. Was that his other big claim to fame at the time? Let me look. 
Da, 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 da. Fuck. Give me a second. <laughs> we need to come up with a system by which we do our research before. You know, it's not Remains of the Day. He w- he had a bit part in Thelma and Louise. He was in A River Runs Through It. That was big, directed by Robert Redford, I think. And then True Romance, he had a very funny small part in. Uh, a Tony Scott film uh, written by Quentin Tarantino. After Interview with the Vampire, he did Legends of the Fall and Seven, uh, you know, where he kind of took off more in these sort of dark uh, dramas. And you could call Interview with the Vampire a dark drama as well. Wait, the, um, the funny thing is, like, his part in Interview with a Vampire, it's just the, like, if, if he had, it's, it's, it's that kind of part where, like, if he had had absolutely no career after this movie, I don't think anyone would have been surprised. But he would always been, whenever he showed up on anything else, he, in any kind of minor part, it would always be, oh, wasn't he that guy who played the vampire? But instead, he went on to have a huge career. But, uh, that, I don't know, that's my own little p- petty observances. Yeah, you know, th- I think Tom Cruise is great as Lestat, and that's certainly the more showy role. Louis is, is sort of like an early example of the what would be in the 90s, the stereotype of a goth kid, right? He self-pities himself a lot. He's like, oh, man, I don't want to do this. I don't want to kill humans. I just want to eat poodles. Well, uh, I want to drain the blood of rats. He's, I don't he's, like being a vampire. This sucks. Well, he's very... And so, I mean... He's very yeah. conflicted. He's he's a yes. guy that makes one like that suffers a tragedy, makes one yep. wrong choice in response to that tragedy, and then is paying for it for the rest of his life. It's a classic sort of like character, uh, a tragedy character, sort of what you might see from a Shakespeare play or a Greek uh, play, you know, from days of old. And uh, it's just the character so flat. Brad Pitt's accent is strange. I don't think it quite works. He doesn't quite have the acting chops to pull off the role, and I think he's said as much since then. But on the other hand, you know, like, uh, the acting around the board is pretty great. Kristen Dunst, I think, is fantastic as a, as a young child actress. But uh, we should get on to talking about the film, but one oh. bit of trivia really quick. Christian Slater plays the interviewer talking to the vampire. Do you know who was cast in that part originally? Uh, who? River Phoenix. Oh, but then he died. Yeah, he had the overdose. And so Christian Slater had to take over the part really quickly, and um, he donated all of his salary, uh, apparently, to, like, uh, a charity or something. Well, that's good. Yeah, and Christian Slater is fine in the part. You know, the character of the interviewer, I don't recall his name, uh, it was, like, Talbot or something, Larry Talbot, maybe, uh, Is a, becomes a big character in the novels as they go on. So... Yeah, I might have the name wrong. I don't. Oh, oh, the name of the reporter. Yeah, I think it's Daniel Malloy in the books. Daniel Daniel Malloy. Yeah, Uh, Malloy. That's right. It it might be a bit different in the books. Anyway, let's talk about the actual fucking film (laughs) interview. Have you already lost your patience with this one? The Vampire. No, I haven't. But we've talked. You know, it's important to set up the books and all these things. And with vampire culture, I think we've had a good discussion so far. But SequelCast ultimately talks about films in a franchise one film at a time, and you can check out past episodes at SequelCast.com or look at the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SequelCast. Um, that being said, Interview with the Vampire, this almost feels like, to me, like two films crammed into one. You have the whole uh, stuff in New Orleans, and then you have the stuff in Paris. Yeah, there really is. Those are the two sections of the film. Uh, New Orleans with Lestat, and then Paris Without so much Lestat. With more Armand, played by Antonio Banderas. Yeah. And uh, I think I like the New Orleans stuff a lot better. And 
it's been a while since I've read the book. The stuff they take out of the book, it's fairly close for the most part. There's a lot more about the life of Louis before he became a vampire. And he had something like a sister that killed himself, that killed herself, and it made him really depressed. So he'd go out drinking a lot, and that's where he met up with Lestat, who turns him into a vampire. And uh, there's a bit in the middle of this film where uh, Louis is with uh, Claudia, the little girl vampire played by Kirsten Dunst. And they go to Europe, right, to try and see, like, what vampires are, and they're kind of zombies. And that's kind of a much bigger section in the book where, uh, you know, Louis kind of misses the humanity of Lestat and that some vampires are just pure, you know, monsters, don't have that much humanity to them. Although, again, if if you if you can consider being a sociopath having a lot of humanity. Yeah, sure. I mean, Lestat is vain. He's uh, a manipulative you know, asshole. He is, and that's what Tom Cruise is good at. Tom Cruise is great at acting the part of an asshole. I think so, anyway. He's good at being like a jerk. He looks kind of... Uh, he, he can carry an air of pretension very well. I think, in some way, Lestat is one of Tom Cruise's uh, career-best performances to date. Yeah, and and when, when he's not happy, he does project a real aura of menace. When he's not getting his way, he, he kind of really quickly goes from tantrum into killing mode. Right, um... So what stuff you like about the New Orleans segment of the film? Well, I guess the thing that the thing that always sticks in in my mind from the New Orleans segment is is the the whole period where uh the whole period where where Louis is uh is you know refuses to feed off of humans so that he's been he's been he's been foraging for 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 river rats and things like that and that's where he's been uh trying to get his sustenance and that's and that is something that I actually had never seen in a vampire movie before was a a vampire that didn't want to feed off people but actually tried to find alternate food sources the stuff with him eating the rats is from the book. The the poodle uh, comic relief is in the film, but I think it really works. You know, the film is so can be dark and depressing that the humor uh, really shines out and I think really helps you swallow the story a bit more and get to like these characters. Uh, you know, there's a scene where uh, Louis, played by Brad Pitt, the vampire, is trying to get used to humans and he kind of hits on this. Wait, uh, I think she's used to humans? Well, you get used to eating, hum- you know, <laughs> feasting on human bloods, uh, human blood. And she, he kind of hits on this really old, I wouldn't say she's a milf or anything, but she's kind of a rich, uh, aristocratic woman. A society uh, woman and matron. A society matron, very well put, Thrasher. And, um, you know, he, he's ready to feast on her, and then he notices the poodles and sees kind of an out. You know, he's not willing to go full-on full on human uh, for his feeding habits until kind of later in the film, and uh, I, I agree, that's really interesting, and just the way Lestat continually toys with Louis, yeah. and even how later when they get Claudia, you know, it's a, the tragedy, another tragedy in the film of a little girl that's a vampire, so she uh, she can never grow old. There's a really sad scene in the film where she's looking through the window, I think, at a at a woman just changing her clothes, and she's standing there naked, and she's like, when kind of look like her? You know, not realizing that she can never grow old. Yeah, that, that's kind of a... And have a, a, a the dark, body of a full woman. That's kind of like a dark moment. And I love it when when the child starts to realize that she will never change. And, like, that, I love that, that yeah. moment where she, she, she cuts, she shears off all of her hair, and then 
just a moment later, it's all back. And and I love that that's just a practical effect. You know, she she's cutting her hair off, leaves the room, and just, you know, stop recording, start recording. She comes back in with a full head of hair. I, I think part of the reason I like that scene so much is because it is a practical effect. Oh, sure. I mean, this was made... Uh, there there might be some CG in the movie. If it's there, it's pretty mild uh, by modern-day standards. And the special effects were done by Stan Winston, who uh, sadly is dead now, but he was a, a real special effects wizard in the 80s, 90s, and beyond. Um, and uh, I really enjoy... I was watching this on Blu-ray. Not that the picture is that great on the transfer on the disc, but the, the makeup with the vampires is really subtle because you can kind of see like veins slightly poking out from beneath their skin. Uh, I'm gonna have to disagree with you there. It's it is okay, not yeah? subtle. They, you don't think it's subtle? They are so totally coated with pancake makeup, and 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 it's not like the, and it's not like it's the subtle hint of veins. They give them big ass Star Trek telepath blue veins shooting through their temples. But I think that looks better as a vampire look than what uh, Joss Whedon and company did on the Buffy the Vampire Slow show. Oh no! I, where I, vampires I, have huge foreheads and huge eyebrows and can barely talk because of all the prosthetic teeth in their mouth. Well, it's because they're showing their their beastly selves. But no, I don't. Eh, agree. No, I don't. I, I like how the vampires look in this picture. No, I do agree that the the look of the vampires in this film is one of the the best vampire looks, but I, it is not subtle in any way. It still is a hit-you-over-the-head monster design. Um, it's nice to see vampire teeth that aren't CG vampire teeth. Oh, yes. You know, I mean, you can really... That that shot just looks really uh, cheap and stuff. So, Well, I mean, you can tell they're real fangs, because it does affect their voices a little bit. A little bit, but it's, uh, you know, you can tell they did a lot of rehearsal. And I think the atmosphere in the New Orleans segment of the film, it just drips in atmosphere. You have a lot of voiceover with Louis that quotes some stuff from the book line for line. And as I was saying earlier, uh, Brad Pitt, or sorry, Anne Rice writing the book is so good with descriptions that throwing some of that in with voiceover is good. But there is a lot of voiceover in the film, which... I think it's sometimes a bit wordy, but do you think that works? Because, I mean, it's the um, whole conceit of him being interviewed and you kind of cut back and forth. Well, it works for me, like, it it works with the, within the context of the fact that there's a frame story with the interview. It works... Yes. In, it works right. when there's like a scene transition or a big, or a big sort of time or location jump. That yep. being said, like... I don't remember any of the narration in this movie up until that bit from the end when there's that lengthy transition uh, to that lengthy montage transition from the past to the present. And it's sort right. of expressed yeah, through different sure. movies that Louis has seen at a cinema. Yes. Which that actually is, as strange as that may seem, and possibly because of my love of cinema, that is my favorite part of the movie. When, when huh. we experience the transition from the 1800s to the 1900s to the modern day through images on a movie screen. And, and I just get a special chill when like he talks about, Oh, and I got to see a sunrise one more time. And then it cuts to a clip from Superman. And I thought that is so great. I love that this vampire is still having the American experience. Yeah. And also in addition to that, you know, with the way vampires, or in the film, it's not necessarily all the the tropes, all the cliches you'd see 
from Dracula. It's not that they don't hate garlic. They can walk around, you know, in electricity just fine. But the they walk around the, in electricity. The sun. They walk around in a lighted, in an artificially oh. lighted <laughs> environment, uh, just fine. <laughs> but and and you know, like the coffins, and he's like, "Oh, coffins are true." I mean, there, there's humor in there, and I, I think that they play with what a vampire is is interesting. Well, that's something um, that you've got to do in a in a vampire, yeah, sure. in any vampire property now, is you really have to figure out how your vampires work. And Anne Rice did put some did put some thought in that. It's certainly not as structured as you'll often see in later works, but you know, she 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 sets it out. They're they're immortal. They they drink blood. Yep. They don't age. Sleep in coffins. The end. Yeah, and I mean, this was never meant to be really a franchise, but uh, oh, in the was. first book, no, oh, well, maybe it was. I don't know, but like in the first book, you want to do world building, and this does it very well, setting the rules. And also in the beginning, it's uh, with the vampires in New Orleans. It's kind of the triumvirate of uh, it's the only vampires they know are around: Louis, Lestat, and Claudia. And then when Louis and Claudia go to uh, Gay Paris, France. They, uh, As opposed see, to the uh, other Paris. <laughs> straight Paris, gay Paris, yeah. <laughs> uh, when they go there, they find out that there's a... I can't speak French, I was going to do Theater de Vampire. No, that's, that's terrible. What does it look like? The the- uh, Theater de, de Vampire? Vampire, I think you're probably right. Uh, Grand Grignol, uh, that's not how Grand you say Guignol. that either. You know, there you go. Um you know, they see a theater where it's a whole bunch of vampires living together, and they put on this theater uh, this theater production in the late 1800s that's really amusing to humans, that has a lot of violence and, and sex, but little do the audience know that the feedings and, all, and the sacrifices on stage are all kind of real. And uh, I love that part, too, because I love, I love yeah. overblown theater productions, and I love, yes, I love sure. the idea of, of, a, of, a, of a pretentious vampire who considers himself an artist putting on this kind of play and just kind of, like, smirking the whole time. Oh, if my audience only knew! Right, and what do you think of the vamp- the main vampire characters in, in France that pop up? Is a, I don't know if you'd say villains, but they're kind of, you know, a different breed of vampire. Well, Armand, that, played by... That, like, you know, cause Lestat is a sociopath, and Lestat is always always sort of manipulating people to get what they want. But the vampires in Paris just take what they want to the point where they have like right where they have like all those like children that they're feeding off of and that and like that scene where there's like that that boy that like like ten or eleven year old boy whose arm is covered with with bite marks that's just. That's a very disturbing scene. To me. Retrograde Amnesia is a comprehensive podcast where we relive a classic Japanese RPG. Season 1 covers the cult classic Xenogears. In Season 2, we're covering Chrono Cross. Each episode, we take a section of the game and unpack the story, mechanics, music, and themes. And we have an AI companion, the fake net. It'll make sense later. Find Retrograde Amnesia wherever podcasts are found. Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO, Editor-in-Chief, over there at ShackNews.com. Give a listen to the Shackcast, the official Shack News podcast of Shack News, uh, over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Sure, and in uh, addition to all that, you know, I think the character of Armand, played by Antonio Banderas, is sort of more like a, a heroic vampire, kind of more, kind of more around uh, what Louis sort of thinks of himself as, sort of more empathetic towards humans and, and the plight of man. And uh, later on, Anne Rice did a novel called The Vampire, called, I think, maybe Armand or The Vampire Armand. That's all about his backstory. Uh, I believe you're right. And, uh, oh, I am right about that part. I'm positive. Uh, uh, but, like, Stephen Rhea plays Santiago, which is a real fun, almost, I think, like a jester vampire. He kind of, 
He's very loosey goosey in the way he moves. It's a... well, he's he's a white faced clown pretending to be a red nosed clown. And the music, especially in those scenes, works really well with him kind of going about. We know what else I like is just kind of a playful little scene. Is that bit where like the vampire is like dancing and he starts like he starts like dancing up the archway and defying gravity and is yes, like, hanging upside sure. down from the bridge. That was just a, this is a nice little moment of tomfoolery. It is, and although I, I feel you don't get to know these characters as much in, in Paris, because uh, frankly the film doesn't spend as much time there as they do in New Orleans in the beginning, and it feels like it rushes through this part a bit. You almost wish they would have done it as two films, or better yet, as a miniseries. Mm. It's because of the epic scope you could dig into the characters and, and scenarios a bit more. Oh, what did you think about that, that bit where um, Louis tries to make that young woman a vampire to be uh, to be the girl's mother? The mother... Or surrogate mother. Thematically, I think it's interesting, but at this point in the story, you see Louis or Lestat turning people into vampires so much, it seems kind of old hat. What I like a lot more is the the scene of the death of uh, of her and um, Claudia, where they turn into the, this wonderful kind of like ash sculpture that then kind of vanishes away. Oh, that suicide. Uh, yeah, the suicide thing where they're Yeah, which because I guess that's kind of a thing, because, you know, Louis... Louis made the made the wrong decision when he became a vampire. Louis made the wrong decision when he made the girl a vampire. Louis yeah. continuing to make the wrong decision when he makes that young woman a vampire to to take care of the girl. And like I I I like there there's something kind of I I I like the brutal and efficient way that that those two other vampires basically clean up Louis's mistakes. Yeah, I would not want to take Louie as a gambling buddy, as a good luck charm, if I go to Las Vegas anytime soon. You know, they they kind of like by by killing themselves, they effect they wipe his slate clean, at least down to the first mistake of just becoming a vampire. Right. And I, I believe later on in the books, Louie loosens up a bit, and you constantly have Lestat making fun of Louie the entire time. And in part of the novel that takes place after this, or um, the novel released after Interview with the Vampire called Vampire Lestat, as you might imagine, it's about Lestat's backstory, but some of it crosses over with the Interview with the Vampire, but it tells those events from Lestat's point of view. I thought uh, the Vampire Lestat came out in the uh, early 80s. The book came out in the early 80s, but it was the second book released after Interview with the Vampire, which was the first book. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the I'm sorry, is what I was trying to say. But and they were trying to develop uh, Vampire Lestat as a film, but because of rights issues, they had very little time to make a, a sequel. And there was, all, you know, between the producers who had the rights to what, it was all very complicated. And uh, so that's why it was, you know, uh, almost a decade later when the sequel to this Queen of the Damned came out and had none of the same cast or director or anything, except for the characters, kind of. Yeah, as we'll talk about next week on sequel cast. Um, oh, so know, with speak, that, speaking of yeah. uh, the vampire Lestat, um, there was a, a there was a, a woman who lived uh, just down the dorms from me in my uh, first year of college, and she was a tremendous uh, Anne Rice fan, and she she had this, and she wasn't the only person I heard this from, but I heard it the most vocally from her is when when Queen of the Dam started being produced, and it was finally announced that you know oh the uh, the vampire Lestat's finally going to be adapted to the big screen. She was just furious, and the reason she was furious was that she 
the, the whole part of the, the novel of the vampire Lestat, a good chunk of it takes place in the present day. But the present day when it was written, which is the 1980s, and it involves him yes. becoming effectively a hair metal rock star. And yep. it was just this whole right. thing. You can't have a hair metal rock star in a movie today. That'll look silly. And I'm like, I'm sure they will update it. No, it's in the book. He's a hair metal rock star. They can't make it into a movie if he's not a hair metal rock star. It was it was such a bizarre thing. You know, we'll talk about that more um, next uh, week when we discuss uh, Queen of the Damned. And uh, I've, I've read that book too. And uh, I believe they updated a bit to make it sort of more like goth, uh, like goth metal. Kind of, well, yeah, well, goth they metal, goth a pop, contemporary music form. Yeah, which I think is wise. Um, so, interview with the vampire. Is there any last things you want to touch on? Oh Lord, um... I mean, there's so much. As you said, the film is very, very dense. I think the the last shot of this film is very cheesy, where the interviewer, played by uh, Christian Slater, kind of drives off, and then Lestat pops out of the back of his car. <laughs> yeah. Says, "Let me give you the choice I never had." You, you know... Oh, I, and then bites them. As it I plays Rolling that, Stone, Sympathy for the Devil. Well, I mean, that Diana is Rose's a hand-out-of-the-grave moment, but at the same time, yes, the movie's fun. been so camp and heightened up to that point. Yeah. It really is the only appropriate thing you can have happen in the end. <laughs> I mean, that's not the ending of the book. Uh, in the book, you, you have the same scene from the film of Louis... You know, the inter, the interviewer guy, uh, Daniel Malloy... Tells Louis, make me into the vampire. I really want that. And then Louis's like, are you sure that's what you want? Blah, 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 blah. And I forget what happens at the end of the book. But if he makes him into a vampire or not. He attacks the boy. And it doesn't say at the end of the book, actually, if um, he becomes a vampire or not. Leave that to your imagination. But he does, in fact, become a vampire in the later books. So, yeah, that ending is sort of... It's kind of cheesy, but I can see people in the audience either groaning or cheering. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on whether or not you're a Lestat fan. But you want to talk about a tag for a sequel. I mean, <laughs> if they if they could have got Tom Cruise to be Lestat again, I think that would have been great. Um, yeah, but I guess that, was, that, that, op, that opportunity came and went. It did, like a vampire bat in the night. So let's uh, let's give a rating to interview with a vampire out of five stars. I'll begin. All right. I give interview with the vampires um, possibly five out of yeah five out of five stars. I think it's just about the perfect perfect vampire film. You have camp, you have humor, you have some scares, you have some romance, you have a big sweeping epic featuring the locales of both New Orleans and Paris, and I think it's uh, totally pretty faithful to the books. I I just wish there would have been like a longer director's cut just to dig a bit deeper into the characters, but I think it it holds up well if a bit sillier than I thought it was when I watched it as a teenager. I I'm gonna go ahead and give it a four, in in the sense that you know I really like a good chocolate cake and this is a good chocolate cake, but but damn it, you can have too much chocolate in a chocolate cake. <laughs> so is Tom Cruise the chocolate or is that Brad Pitt? No, it's just like they're sort of like they're. The the film the film is 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 so dense that the pipe is blocked basically at times. It's a constipated there's, film. There's so much stuff packed into this film that after a while it reaches a density where it starts competing with itself. I see. It's an interesting point. But it's still you know, a nice, a sumptuous feast of a movie, Pro- uh, a... provided you want a feast of chocolate cake. 
It's a great way to put it. Um, so now in SequelCast, let's uh, take a break before going on to our next segment and talk about our sponsors a little bit. All right. So if you go to SequelCast.com, uh, you can download all the past episodes of the SequelCast, and you can see uh, we have some sponsors. We have a Google Ads on there. We uh, have a section called Buy a Movie, where if you want to, next time you go on Amazon, click on one of our links and do your shopping, we'll... Get a little cut of that. Every bit helps uh, whoa, doing whoa, a podcast. Whoa, whoa. They have you can buy movies now. You can buy movies. What Amazon.com. crazy Jetsons world are we living in where you can purchase yeah. a movie? Right. You don't have to go uh, to to the cinema and whip out your uh, your eight millimeter film uh, projector and, and try and record it illegally through your large jacket. I'm glad you finished that with film projector because I was waiting to fill in the blanks. <laughs> About your large <laughs> cinema sausage. No. Um, <laughs> but so that's something. We also have a PayPal button to donate if you want to do that. Uh, every little bit helps with the show. Not that doing a podcast is terribly expensive, but it does uh, cost us a, a bit year to year, and we'd appreciate that. You can also check out, uh, of course, as we mentioned earlier, SequelCast, uh, the podcast, is part of the Battleship Pretension fleet, and we have links to the other shows uh, of the Battleship Pretension fleet such as uh, the Artur cast, which is an interesting look where it takes a movie director and looks at their films one by one. And uh, the guys over there, including West Anthony and Rudy Obias, do a really neat discussion of directors ranging from Quentin Tarantino. I think currently they're looking at Billy Wilder, which will take them quite some time to cover his uh, piece of work. And, of course, the Battleship Pretension podcast. Uh, the lead ship in the Battleship Pretension fleet is uh, on there. Is We have links to... Uh, that website at battleshipretention.com as well. Um, and we should also mention SequelCast is a Hipster Goblin production. You can check out the website hipstergoblin.com, which as of now only has links to the three SequelCast podcasts, the SequelCast, Sequel Commentary, and SequelCast Special. I guess, uh, we, I guess we are the boatniks of the Battleship Retention fleet. I think with a little tugboat, with a little, like, uh, tire... In the ocean on the back. That's it. We're, we're in the little life preservers holding on to a little twine. Glad to be part of that uh, of that fleet, but uh, working our way up the ladder. Someone's got to swab the decks. Uh, the deck swabbers. That'd be a great name for a band. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if you want to send us an email, you can do that at sequelcast at gmail.com, or better yet, go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash sequelcast. I think that's it for the plugging, don't you? I do believe so. Oh, my. Hello. Oh, the start. Rocket. Janet. Meatloaf. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, in past episodes of the sequel cast, we've covered stuff like Rocky Horror Picture Show, which we were just making fun of. (laughs) And uh, Shock Treatment and Die Hard and Jurassic Park and all these fun things. Check those out at sequelcast.com. So we've talked about Interview with the Vampire, giving it ratings out of five stars now let's do uh, our next segment pitch a sequel in which we pretend no sequel was ever filmed in interview interview with the vampire i can't speak today and we uh pitch what a sequel should be considering no other sequels existed <laughs> i will start if this is called interview with the vampire i would call um the sequel vampire with the interview and that it's uh 90 <laughs> minutes real time of uh, the character of Louis, still played by Brad Pitt, but in modern day. So you, you kind of have to use a lot of makeup and CG to make him look younger. And get all his gray facial hair and off of him. Uh, 
preparing for the 90 minutes before he goes in to interview the character played by Christian Slater. Yeah. And it's like he, he tries to, he goes through his closet. What clothes should I wear? Oh, what should I feast on so I don't get too hungry during the interview? Because this is a, a young man I'm interviewing. And vampires love the taste of the young. And it would be very dry and drab. And I think uh, a lot of vampire fans would would hate it. And, and the, the the devout few would secretly love it. So, it's so that, that's my pitch. That, uh, an absurd alt-comedy uh, vampire with the interview. <laughs> Sort of a conceptual sort of my dinner with Andre, but with just one guy, uh, sort of thing. You get to see how vampires bathe, shave, and crave. They well, they they don't shave. Their hair just stays wherever it was when they were made vampires. So th- their shaving is oh, I shave before I was turned. I guess I'm done. You know, in modern day society, some women might get what you call a Brazilian, but vampires get a Parisian. I'll leave it at that. So what's your picture sequel? Okay. Um, my, uh, uh, my, uh, mine would be uh, uh, <laughs> Interview with Vampire 2, uh, Blood on the Boards. And this one, it, mm. would, it, would, it would return with Christian Slater as, uh, as Daniel Malloy. Uh, to Paris? now interviewing, he's doing more, he's trying to do more research on vampires. So he's interviewing the only survivor of a supposed massive vampire attack. So once again, most of the movie is told in flashback. And the whole mm. so the whole flashback is it turns out uh, Armand and his Theatre de Vampire uh, has moved to the United States and has become this he, he keeps revising it and updating it and he'd be doing that through the centuries. So in the modern day or the 80s or whenever the hell the flashbacks take place it's yeah. gotten to the point where he's gotten a movie deal and if, huh. and he's sort of like a, a mat. This is like all the the decadence of the coke fueled Hollywood of the seventies. So you mean like like a slasher sort of film, no, funded no. and directed by vampires? No, no, no. no. It's gonna be, it's gonna be oh. a great vampire work of art. But you know, oh, he okay. has all the resources of a major studio, and he hmm. des- and he decides since the film is supposed to climax with a massive orgy for the dead, he's going right, to yeah. host a real orgy for the dead and get it on film, and that's like the big climax. Is that like a third of the production people during this big expensive scene turn out to be actually vampires and kill and eat everybody uh, on the soundstage, and it becomes this massive, massive slaughter. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, but this, but the person that's being interviewed is supposedly the only person from the crew of that film who, who made it out alive. And nobody believes it it happened. People are like thinking that, well, that maybe someone just had a drug overdose and killed everybody. The studio is trying to cover it up because they don't want the scandal. And somewhere there is a final cut of this movie floating around. And when the movie finally ends, it turns out that the reason this person survived the attack is that during the attack, they became a vampire, and once again, they attack Malloy, and Sympathy for the Devil starts playing. Nice. Let me tie you back to the ending of the interview with the vampire. Yeah. In now, my mind, every sequel will end with Malloy being attacked by a different vampire. Yeah. So would the the pitch be for the, the third one, and in, in your idea, be like editor of the vampire, where it's just, where it's just like a film editor sitting on his Macintosh, uh, cutting the uh, lost vampire film going frame by frame. Oh, this frame is bad. Let me edit it. No. Oh, this needs a softer sound mix. No, I just find some other I'd find some other vampire in the movie uh, from the original movie and just follow them around. I'll figure out a story for them. 
Right, and Rice certainly did that with a lot of the, the sequel books that she did yeah. in her Vampire Chronicles saga. Um, so, hey, hey, Matt, whatcha, whatcha, yes. whatcha watching? Very good, Thrasher. Yeah, whatcha watching, in case this is your first time listening. And if you like the show, you know, check out the other stuff at SequelCast.com. Is uh, a segment where we talk about a piece of media, whether it be video game, film, book, whatever, that we've enjoyed in the past week. I'll begin as I usually do. I was going to say always. I don't know if that's always been the case. Um, this past week, I've had a chance to sit down and play the demo to a video game, Resident Evil 6, on the Xbox uh, 360. And Resident Evil, it's a, it's a series I've admired, but I've been really shitty at the video games. You know, and I've kind of enjoyed the movies. So what that means at the end of the days i tried out the demo for this resident evil 6 i found the controls really difficult and kind of obtuse and i found the storyline kind of nonsense um that being said you know the graphics look really good they can really make games look realistic nowadays and it's not uh, unlike how it used to be and i'm not saying it used to be better necessarily you don't have a lot of really big budget japanese games that come out anymore on uh, video game consoles you know and so that's interesting to see with a big budget what it looks like. And I'm sure the whole thing isn't done in Japan. Uh, some of it might be outsourced overseas or something. But apparently the game, Resident Evil 6, the the full game like has four different campaigns, each from the point of view of a different character and each with a different gameplay style. And it, over the years, Resident Evil has kind of shifted more from survival horror where it's kind of more suspense and you're limited on your ambo to shoot down zombies to be more of like an action sort of Rambo kind of game. Uh, from a third-person perspective, have you ever have you ever played a Resident Evil? Game? Uh I I've played the first three. I don't think I've played any. Oh, okay, gotcha. Haven't played um, any of the modern incarnations. Yeah, I think the first one's probably the one I've played the most through myself. And I found the demo interested. Not didn't make me interested enough to play the game, but I thought it was just fun to give that demo a spin. Uh, what's something you've been watching? Well. I was going to talk about how I had started reading the wonderful, lyrical, and delightful King of Elfland's Daughter by the immortal Lord Dunsany. But instead, I'm going to tell you about Jason of Star Command, which I watched while working on some illustrations today. Oh my god. Jason of Star Command. Watching it, it looks like if somebody today wanted to make a parody of science fiction from the 1970s, but it's not. It's actually a science fiction show from the 1970s that makes all these mistakes that look like they're intentional jokes. Now, is this before Star Wars? Oh, no, no, this is post-Star Wars. In fact, it's one of those, okay. like, like Battlestar Galactica, it's Star one Galactica, of those things that right. got off the ground because of uh, gotcha. uh, Star Wars showed how viable science fiction could be. Hmm. But it was a kid's science fiction adventure series <laughs> with st- starring loosely starring James Doohan from uh, Star Trek as uh, the commander. It's <laughs> like nothing... I, I, it's hard to explain, but like if, if I was trying to make... If, if, if everything on this show is real, but it's something that should be a joke, but it's not. Like, for instance, they don't have any spacesuit costumes, so people can just go out into space. Uh, <laughs> they're... they're um, Oh yeah, <laughs> there's oh there there's old there's old fashioned there's some old timey racism. There's this whole bit where the where James Doohan gets replaced by a clone, and the female lead defeats the uh, subdues the clone using martial arts, 
and the uh, the dopey scientist character, who clearly is meant to be an alien, but they didn't have any makeup or, or effects budget to make him an alien, so instead they just give him a weird haircut and have him act really goofy. Uh, yeah. He, you know, he's like, oh, well, maybe you can... And she's like, oh, yeah, I used a Kung Fu. It's an ancient Chinese art of self-defense. Oh, well, maybe you can teach me sometime. Uh, and he's like, oh, yeah, sure, maybe. maybe. Like, uh, meet, meet me in the training simulator or whatever. And she leaves, and he's just standing in the control center for Star Command headquarters, and then he starts making, like, terrible, like, fake Chinese noises and making these chop-chop motions with his hands. And this keeps... And he doesn't stop. He keeps going. <laughs> the camera just holds on him, going, Choi, 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 doing, like, these stupid kung fu moves. And the thing is, this is a set that has, like, five extras, like, walking around on it who are all kind of ignoring him. And all I can think is the people in the Star Command universe are so used to this guy doing this when he thinks no one's watching that they just don't even care anymore. Well, thinking of casual Asian racism, yeah, um, or racism against Asians, I should say. That's <laughs> those are two different things when you think about it. They go uh, great I, together. Yeah, I recently saw a, a trailer for a new Sylvester Stallone film that's coming out. I think in like January or February 2012, called Bullet Through the Head. Uh-huh. I think. And it stars Stallone, and it looks like it's directed by uh, Walter Hill, the same director of um, 48 Hours and, and all these legendary films. I can't, that's the only one I can think of at the moment. It's that legendary, and, But it takes on that 48 Hours formula where you have Sylvester Stallone as kind of the wise old cop, and his, uh, his old partner gets killed, and his new partner he's stuck with is an Asian guy that's younger. Played by Chris Tucker? Not, not played by Chris Tucker. But, um, you know, it might as well be, but, like, the jokes are, like, Sylvester Stallone, uh, when you pair him up with comedy, it's a very peculiar sense of humor, and sometimes it works. It's always kind of dopey. But he's like, is my radio. I'm sorry we're not listening to no rap or nothing or kung fu music. Kung fu music. I know, like, uh, the trailer is about what you expect it would be. It looks, Christian Slater, you know, from Interview with the Vampire, is actually in the film, and it was filmed in New Orleans, oh. of all places. Um and, you know, watching that, I think at least that looks mildly intriguing compared to a new Schwarzenegger film coming out called The Last Stand, which I saw a trailer for. Have you seen that one? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Where it stars Arnold Schwarzenegger with Johnny Knoxville. Hmm. And uh, it's about, it's sort of a modern Western where a bunch of criminals, I, I think, uh, you know, like show up in a, a town in the in the West an old-fashioned small dive town, and the sheriff, played by Schwarzenegger, has to protect the town. I see. Yeah, the only the only um, trailer I've seen recently is the trailer for the uh, remake of Evil Dead. Oh, I haven't seen that trailer. Yeah, How does that look? Ch- ch- check it out. Oh, but yeah. like, I think it tips its hand, because the trailer basically uh-huh. consists of all the scenes you remember from the first two Evil Dead movies, but reshot with young actors. And same Raimi and Bruce Campbell, I think, are producers in the film, but it's directed by someone else. Yeah, yeah. And is it written by Diablo Cody, I writer of Juno? I don't know. Like, I did, I, like, you I don't know, really okay. Just I thought I read that somewhere. Screen. I, I did not catch any credit. The thing is, th- I, yeah. this is a project I'm just not at all interested in. Hmm. Um, th- these are two movies that do not need to be remade. What do you mean, two movies? E- oh no! It's Evil, evil it's, Dead the, the and Evil. Remake consists of of Evil Dead One and Evil Dead Two remade as one film. Uh, you could argue Evil Dead Two in some ways is a remake of the first film. Oh yeah, oh, 
true, true. Basically, but, you know, but right? It's bigger, like it's bigger, better, and crazier. But th- but this movie, yeah. just seemed, like at least the, the trailer is just a highlight reel. Like I like like I feel like I've seen the movie now, and I just don't I don't need to mm. see it at all. Right. Like, oh yeah, they that thing from the movie is happening, and now that thing from the movie is happening. So it looks like I like I've already seen this movie many many times in its original form. Um, you know, I'm not sure, given the time that has passed, that if Sam Raimi did an Evil Dead 4, if that would be any better, because of well, no, because it, it would, it would have to. High Camp and it would have Bruce Campbell. I think it would be better. It, it would be honest. He would at least be it, it'd be more honest. Yeah, you, you, you got to expect. Do you think Bruce Campbell has a cameo in this uh, remake? He's pro- he probably is the kindly old man who runs whatever store they general store they stop into to get beer on the way to the cabin, who says something dark and prophetic, but then smirks at the camera. Don't go to the cabin. I've heard there's some kind of evil dead up there. <laughs> I would love it if that was his line. <laughs> Yeah, that should be his line. There's people dead up in that cabin. <laughs> you want to get there before dark. You got to <laughs> ray me your way to the cabin. <laughs> Watch out for the fake shimps. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. You know, given that, you might even see a cameo from uh, Ted Raimi. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that, yeah. You know, it'll be interesting to see how it does. A lot of these, uh, we can speak about that really quick before we wrap up this uh, sequel cast on Interview with the Vampire. Um, a lot of these kind of recent reboots of horror films haven't really, you know, worked with, into sequels. I was talking to Wes Anthony, a, a co-host of uh, the Autour cast, you know, one of the members of the Battleship Pretension fleet, along with the sequel cast. And, and he was, and we were talking about the, they did a remake of The Omen recently. Oh, yeah. That made a lot of money, but you know the, the remake didn't come out with any sequels. Well, and uh, when they did reboots of Friday the Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street, those didn't spawn sequels, but Halloween did. Um, well, the th- the thing is, just the way the, f- the the theater distribution network works, horror movies are one of your safest bets if you want to invest in a movie and turn a profit. Because yes, all you have sure. to do is it's very easy to keep the budget low on a horror movie. And that's what, you know, that combined with the distribution makes it very easy to turn a profit. So that's really the main. It's not that those movies, those remakes are any good. It's that the market is structured in such a way that it's very difficult for them to lose money. Right. And, um, you know, along those lines, I think that's what makes Paranormal Activity so genius. I only saw the first film of those and I didn't think it was that great. But the whole found footage thing, you talk about low budget, it's like a camera on a tripod where nothing happens for most of the movie. <laughs> it's all, you know, it's all a bunch of like jump scares where cats jump out of the closet. Or it's like, oh, did my closet shake? Oh, oh did, oh, oh, the pillow fluffed. Oh, what's happening? <laughs> it's, it's, well, it's a whole, like with a lot of those movies, it's like, at least my impression, having seen some of them, is that it's a whole lot of filler and one or two creepy moments. Right, but and, you know that that spawned off its whole horror genre of its own. And the, and, but the uh, more the more these movies come out, the more tortured you have to get to explain why someone's still filming things. Yeah, to wrap this up, I do want to say, like, out of like the recent horror movie franchises, one that I really enjoyed is the the Saw films. And I was talking to uh, friends of the show. Um, oh my, uh, Stephen Applebaum, yeah. uh, who we had on to talk about Mario Brothers on a sequel cast special. And uh, he was making the argument that the Saw movies are kind of like a horror movie mixed with a soap opera. 
And he's absolutely right. As those movies continue, they try to tie in new characters and and tie them into old movies in very convoluted ways. That's, uh, I think, really enjoyable. And yet it still has a very dark tone of despair, but they're kind of funny at the same time. And there's the whole phrase torture porn, which is kind of arguable. (laughs) But um, did you ever see the Saw films? Or, I mean, what do you think of some of the... Is there a recent horror movie franchise you've enjoyed? I... Franchise? I don't think so. What about film then? Uh, uh, well, film. I mean, I I loved 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 Cabin in the Woods. Mm. That was a that right, was we... a brilliant horror movie. That was also a brilliant yeah. deconstruction on horror movies. That was also a brilliant sort of essay on horror movies. Like it, like it did see Cabin in the Woods. Uh, oh, actually, and we talked I... about it with the you know in some length with uh, guest Chris Walsh on our Gremlins episode a few weeks ago. But um, but actually, I did see Tucker and Dale versus Evil, which is, which is oh, yeah. a parody. Yep. But it keeps enough hardcore horror elements that I think it works. Tucker and Dale versus Evil was was very entertaining. I've, along those same lines, I've heard Leslie Vernon behind the mask is a, an amusing deconstruction of the genre. But actually, I have not seen yes, that one. it is. It's it's okay. it's a little. It kind of it kind of does does drag, but it is it is it is brilliant as as like a mockumentary where being yeah. a slasher killer is for all intents and purposes a calling and a job, and you know just going behind the scenes of what the killer is doing when they're not in the act of killing is really fascinating. All right, one last thing to wrap this up. I've been saying that a lot for the past ten minutes, but um, <laughs> a, a non sequel horror movie I enjoyed that's. Uh, kind of recent was called Vacancy starring Luke Wilson. Oh yes. And it's it's a similar premise to Psycho in that um a, a couple stays at a motel and then the motel owners are, are kind of, you know, crazy and like to film people getting killed and that sort of thing and set up traps. Oh yeah. But it, it keeps the stakes really low and it feels more realistic, I think with the the terror in there as far as what could happen if you stayed at a crazy motel in the middle of nowhere. It doesn't get so outlandish with, with traps and, and all these secrets and things. Oh, so no elaborate that, death traps. Not not unbelievably elaborate. I think it's an effective kind of horror thriller movie, that you, you don't see something that, I, I don't know if I'd call it realistic, but it's more, more subtle, less less campy, I think, than some stuff. So, all right. Well, um, hope you like this episode of the Sequel Cast. Uh, tune in next week at sequelcast.com or. You can also, you know, check us out at battleshipretention.com is when other sequel cast episodes pop up. Because uh, remember the Battleship Retention fleet, uh, where we talk about the sequel to Interview with a Vampire, Queen of the Damned, which stars Stuart Townsend, an actor nobody knows who he is, uh, <laughs> instead of Tom Cruise and the lead is Lestat. And check us out also at Facebook at facebook.com slash sequelcast for the sequel cast. This is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Saying he receives no remuneration from watching the sequel. Ah, uh, I was going to say, uh, I'm hungry, Lestat. I want more. <laughs> more. Give, give me more blood. Uh, that's something I'll close out on from the um, short-lived uh, Elton John uh, musical Lestat. The character of Claudia has a musical number called "I Want More." I'm, I'm imagining she... Baruch Assault from uh, from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. 
And I'm going to sing a small piece of that song because our <laughs> listeners love to hear. And, you know, they recorded a, an official soundtrack album to Lestat that never got released. Uh, well, thank goodness for bootlegs. Yeah, so I, I will I will sing a <laughs> a cover of her song I knew only from a bootleg. With orchestral the, accompaniment? No. Uh, you can do orchestral accompaniment, Thrasher. Uh, what do you need? Oh, just some uh, orchestral strings. Look at... Look at you, you disapprove like two fussy mothers. Who are you to criticize the habits of another? Did I rock the family boat by dining on the help? Aren't I just a little beast? Well, I can't stop myself. I want more, I want more. I don't want their milk and honey. They can keep their fine herb teas. I don't need their chocolate hot and sweet. It's thick and red for me. For any everyone that comes along knocking on this door, don't blame me. It's your fault that I want more. And that's not lyrics I invented myself, Thrasher, believe it or not. That's from Elton John and Bernie Taupin. Oh. I know it sounds like nonsense made-up musicals I we used to joke around all the time. Yeah, yeah like, th- that, <laughs> that is like, no, 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 that's exactly it. Like, if, if we were playing our, our, our make-up-a-musical game, that is exactly, if, if yes. the premise was sing a song about a greedy vampire child, but you have a very limited vocabulary, that's the song. <laughs> oh, the lyrics get worse. Thanks to you, the things I do verge on the obscene. What a pair of hypocrites. Well, this cat wants her cream. <laughs> okay. I, I want more. I want more. Or, or. I, yeah. I don't like taking this kind of like <laughs> delight in, in the flawed works of others. This was the hit. This was the what was presumed to be the hit song from the show. The show-stopping I'll number? I'll have you know. Yes. I can see why this didn't translate to the to, to Broadway very well. Uh, one can hope, you know, some drag bar will do the entire show on stage somewhere. <laughs> I, I, I'd do that. I'd, I'd get the right, old high well, heels out and, uh, and do, a, do a, a drag show with that. All right. Well, again, uh, tune in next week on SequelCast as we wrap up our discussion of the Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles with the film Vampireless Stat. Go to SequelCast.com for more shows. The, the longest the SequelCast sign-off we have ever yeah. done in, th- like, two and a half years. I want to suck your sequel. Okay, <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna. Have some courtesy.